Because all the masters of science Have shown a great light on us all I envy the path of your shadow That offers a wondrous call Where promises lead us to ruin A kiss can drive you to your grave We leap off the edge of tomorrow And sink to the depths of today Welcome to another edition of Too Stupid to Know That I Can't I actually have no idea where I'm going to go with this intro, but we're going to try and stay focused tonight. We're going to talk about two subjects. One of them is to port or not to port your kick drum resonant head. So we're going to talk about the drum side of this podcast. The other one is we're going to talk about the Breck Epic and honestly my new Orbea team bike, which is the new OETH. Off the air... Dalton and I were talking about etiquette, and we first started talking about elevators, and for the record, people, come on, keep your butts shut. Seriously, stop farting in elevators. There are other people in there that nobody wants to smell any of that. Well, for my elevators, I'm always in the hospitals anyway, so there's, there, there's, a, there's a, a hospital smell no matter what. Can you describe that? Well, there's a there is an odor that people acquire when they lay in bed for three days. Unshowered. No, no, because because when you can when you can only get like a bed bath or you can't take a proper shower, and even if we change your sheets, there is a. It's not like an offensive smell, but there's a there's a smell. You know what the smell is? It's the smell of a person who has had no option but to lay in this bed for three days. And hospital standard for bathing is once every three days. That's healthcare standard. Some hospitals do more, some, but standard is every three days. Bare minimum, you have to offer your patient uh, hygiene every 72 hours. So let's go back. Let's remind people you're a nurse by a nurse. trade mm-hmm. and education. Mm-hmm. But now you do... I'm a marketer. My job title is called clinical liaison. And your specialty is to put people into facilities to help them... Post-acute facilities, so patients that are ready to discharge the critical access hospitals, places with ERs where ambulances go, those are critical access hospitals. When it's time to discharge those places, but you are not safe to go home, uh, the company I work for provides its skilled nursing, so it's patients that are going to need a little bit of physical therapy, IV antibiotics, things like that to get done before, so that they can go home in the safest possible position. So you've been a nurse for how long? About six years. And the hospital standard for bathing is healthcare standard. You have healthcare. to op- offer your patient a bath. Now they can refuse. Um, most places offer it daily, but the, the, the standard is every 72 hours. If you do not offer your patient hygiene at the minimum of every 72 hours, you are, you are uh, harming that patient. You're negligent. That's crazy that the healthcare standard is 72 hours. Now, granted, you're just lying there, depending upon how sensitive you are to temperature or other things, or you mm-hmm. could be stressing out. There could be a lot of different things happening, yeah? Yes, but you... I don't mean to sound gross, but you don't really need to shower every day. Okay. Like, you don't need to get your scrubby pad and your soap and your shampoo. I mean, just if anybody who goes to a, a, a talented barber or a salon, ask your barber or hairstylist, should I shampoo my hair every day? You will get told no. No. 
Ask, ask any woman who cares about her hair how often you should shampoo it. And you will get a number of options, but what you of ideas, but what you will not get is every day. If you say, hey, should I wash my hair every day? You're going to get told no. Anybody who cares about that. Your body has, has oils and all this stuff over its skin that are supposed to be there. Okay. It doesn't hurt you to go without a shower. If you are hot and sweaty, you should probably at least go rinse off. For just, you know, some people get parts of our skin touch, they rub, and if you get some sweat on it and they rub together for long enough, you can get a, a chafe. To avoid that, yeah, you could you should get in the shower at least every at minimum every other day for that, but for patients who are just lying in the bed, they're not doing anything, the healthcare standard is seventy two hours. So like a hooker bath. As long as you take a hooker bath, you're okay. At least get in the shower, wash wash all the the under areas, get under <laughs> your arms, get under this other stuff. Uh, any any part of you that's covered by a bathing suit is you could you should wash that more often, but you don't need to get in there and get you know your your, your axe <laughs> body wash or whatever you know what well, your your Irish Spring whatever particular product you like to use your Old Spice you don't need to scrub yourself head to toe every single day. Some people feel better doing it. If you do, fine. If you don't, you're not unhealthy. Well, there's hygiene tips on Too Stupid to Know That I Can. Well, I brought up our, our discussion earlier about kind of etiquette and people, and particularly elevators. As part, as part of my job, I've realized I spend a lot of time in elevators. It's just kind of so happens because so many hospitals are, are not new buildings. It, it takes billions of dollars sometimes to build a hospital so rather than tear a hospital down and build a new one it's easier just to build onto it and here in Tulsa where we are I think the best example of that is St. Francis Hospital um, if anybody not familiar with it we call it the Pink Palace it just keeps growing and if you've ever had to really walk through or kind of explore that place it's chaos it is a it is the Winchester Mansion with purpose they just keep, if you've ever visited the Winchester Mansion, there are stairways and doors that go nowhere. And you end up do spending a lot of time in elevators because if you need to go, if you're in one part of the hospital and you need to go through the ninth floor of another hospital, you might have to take three different elevators to get there because not every floor is going to connect across the whole campus. But the buildings will connect, but the campus will be vast. And an example of that, my pedometer on my cell phone from the children's hospital to x-ray and back. So as I often, as many times I did take a patient in a bed and push that bed to x-ray, the patient would get the x-ray, and then I would push that bed back, was three elevator trips, and according to my pedometer, it was just over uh, 1.3 miles of walking back and forth, simply because there's no direct line anywhere. As part of the job that I do, now, I do spend... I get out of my car, I get, I walk into a building, I get in an elevator, I go up three floors, I walk about 300 yards, I get in another elevator, and I go to another floor, so I end up spending a lot of time in elevators, and I've just noticed that people are really rude when it comes to elevators, and I think it was a Zach Galifianakis that said he finds rudeness funny, because rudeness is just people that are just completely unaware of the moment, because no, few people are rude intentionally, so I think they're just so unaware. And it's uh, interesting watching people that are so unaware, especially when it comes to elevators, when they'll go and hit the button for they're going to go up or down, and then they will go stand and square their bodies up to the door and almost touch their nose so they're waiting for it to open to be the first person to rush onto what is probably an already crowded elevator of people that are trying to get off the elevator. And there's always this weird commotion of 
not quite shoving, but almost would, if you would just hit the button and wait an extra three seconds. Oh, you're just bumping into people. It's, yeah, you're just, insane. everybody's trying to shove onto this tiny little box and it's, why? Really, whether, whether you wait a second or shove your way through, you have to get on and they have to get off. If you're trying to shove your way through, that process slows down. Friction slows things down. So, wait, before you go any further. Okay. So, what you're saying is a nice little word that I use here at the shop called consideration. Yeah, but it comes to, like I said, it's people just being unaware. They're in their, they're in, um, I, I don't want to do anything visual, but it uh, was one of um, George Carlin said people walk around with a general <laughs> thing around their head. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a, a bit like a, basically an invisible bag over their head that only they can see because they can't see out of it. And they just, I need to go up. I hit the up button. Doors open. Yay, I got to go in the elevator so we can go up. I got to go see grandma. And there's, I don't believe it's an intentional like move. I got to go see my grandmother. It's a my focus, the job, the task I am performing is to get on this elevator and go see my grandmother and no other human being is in consideration. And I'm going to relate that back to our mobile phones. I'm, I'm you mentioned that earlier and I, I almost, I, it seemed like well, the reason people are rude is because of the moon. Like, wait, hold on. Tie, self, <laughs> wait a minute. Tie that in for me. How, why is, how does, how does mobile phones do that? At my age, I've been in retail for 80% of my lifetime. I've watched the shift in the way people behave in retail from being very interactive to those that are willing to help are a nuisance. My wife will, whenever if I go shopping anywhere, if, we're, if we go to Target and we're looking for a thing she saw online and she can't find it, but there's a dude over there in a red polo and he knows exactly where it is asking him is not an option for us when you're shopping with with my wife and i'm not putting her down i'm just saying that is that is her personal i have seen her i've been with her we've gone to a store to buy an item could not find that item and when we first started dating i got in trouble because i could (laughs) see that she was frustrated not being able to find whatever it was she was looking for so i was like oh hey buddy um dude we're looking for the thing it, what aisle six? Thank you. Like that. That interaction right there is a. I can't believe you asked. We're, we, and you shot. You got laser shot at I you. I was in the doghouse <laughs> for asking the store clerk, "Hey, buddy, I'm looking for the thing. You know, where's this toothpaste? Where's your? You know, I, I'm here for like deodorant, but I usually go to the store by my neighborhood. But I was at work, so I'm at this one, and it's backwards. Where's your like pharmacy section? Yep. Oh. That side, thank you. That interaction, she does not do that. That interaction does not take place. She will look for an hour (laughs) when it could take 10 seconds to be like, hey, I'm looking for like the the shoe section. Hey, I need some laces. I'm looking for some shoe polish. It doesn't matter what it is. Which you are now giving credence to my statement because we will happily make... She got to make cell phones fit into that. We will happily have a 30 or 40 message text conversation... Instead of a 30-second phone call. That's been, that, dude, that has been around for long enough. That's been a meme. That, but therein lies more of that isolationist. We are so at a point right now, because of our mobile devices, we can do everything with our phone and never interact with, our, with another human if we don't want to. 
So by not having to interact with another human, we lose the ability to do such. It's much like the whole concept of use it or lose it. If you listen to the way people speak, they don't speak well anymore. I'm not saying that I'm any great orator or I have some great vocabulary or vernacular, but I can still communicate effectively not in synonyms, not in shorthand, and I don't have, I, I can actually be literate. No, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interject an idea here, like just make sure we're not like becoming Abe Simpson here with the, yeah, yeah. I used to be with it yep. and they changed what it was yep. and now what I'm with is no longer it and what it became is strange and confusing to me. Mm-hmm. If, I mean, it's not hard to find um, in newspaper excerpts or it mentioned in books and TV shows and things like that. Say in the 1950s, you had the, uh, the greaser counterculture had its own language of slang. Mm-hmm. Through the late 60s and in the 70s in Southern California where my family's from, you had the whole length the surfer slang yep. and and you every po- little individual cultural pockets across the planet i mean i can i can speak to locally where i'm from but i, I can't tell you what the slang is in spain but i can tell you it exists in spain Absolutely. is you and i can communicate in, in in a language and then if you and i go to and this is one where you'll be able to jump out if we go what's the sl- i mean just the slang is just different in uh louisiana mm-hmm. right if you and i go to new orleans Right now, you're going to be able to have a conversation. You're going to understand more of the conversation than I will, and yes. not just because they're speaking French, be- because there's a there's a cultural slang that exists. Are is it just the evolution of that? And since you and I don't do that, that we almost are maybe feeling left behind on that, so it seems weird to us. Like I'm I'm spitballing here, but I appreciate the difference in. Something new, something old, which I think is what you're referencing. Kind of like that. But at the same time, when I sit in a bar or a restaurant and I look through the bar or restaurant, and if there's 50 people there and 49 of them are on their phones with conversations and they're at the table with people, there's something very wrong. You're in a room with people. Why are we, why are we no longer engaging with those around us. And I think that stems from the ability to shop, to buy coffee, to have things delivered to our home in an instant without ever having to interact with a human. And I think that creates a level of isolationism. I'm not saying that that's factual, but I think the more we remove ourselves from those processes, I think we lose the ability to do those. A great example, I'm still a firm believer that retail changed the year or the day that employees in retail establishments were wearing an earphone. I think that was the day that retail went to hell in a handbasket. Why do you say that? It's the, the subject asking because the, the, the earpiece I thought was always just the employees communicating with the manager. So if a customer is needing assistance, mm-hmm. they can grab him like, hey, Josh, um, I have a customer that needs help over in, you know, socks. Go, go help them out. So they can be more available. But they're really not. When you have those earpieces in, you're hearing a lot of ear chatter. You're hearing a lot of other things going on in the room. So when somebody walks up to you, you're only able to give that person that's walked up to you 50% of your attention because there's all this other white noise happening in your head. 
So now that person that sees that earpiece in your ear might perceive themselves to be only half as valuable. I can understand that because what if, if, I'm, if I'm in Target and I'm trying to find something and I can't find it and I want to ask the employee and I feel like the employee is busy, I feel bad about asking them. But that you is, shouldn't. Well, I do feel bad about it. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm really, I know you're busy. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just I'm trying to find, like, uh, I need a new band for my Apple Watch and I don't know where I'm I don't know where it yep. is I thought it was an electronics I can't find it I, I know you're busy I'm so like I feel I feel bad about it because I've been busy at work and I don't people bother me I got stuff to do so maybe you mean kind of like that where it, it starts a small barrier that kind of affects us in ways we don't really think about or well the funny part about it is years and years of retail studies will have illustrated multiple times more than not that you have two employees in one establishment, one busy up on a ladder, one standing there more or less picking their nose. Mm-hmm. The customer invariably will walk to the person on top of the ladder doing something precariously because it relates back to people want to do business with people that are doing business. This, this relates to I, my wife up until recently worked at the major public library downtown. Which is baffling some of the stories. Yeah, at, the, at the, the largest public library in the in the system, and we're a city of over half a million people, which I know is, might be small to some people. We have a large downtown area, the huge three-story library, and their main front desk, she would tell me, she would have a line at her desk, and the other per, the person who is there, the other librarian who is there, who is just as capable and educated and ready to help them, but is just 30 feet away, will have nobody. Because she's busy. She is busy, and she would get so frustrated, she would say, patrons, like, will see me with books stacked up and talking to another patron yep. and helping someone fill out a job application or also helping someone look for a job online, which is what they do a lot of at the library, and someone else will be tapping on the shoulder, excuse me, excuse yep. me, excuse Absolutely. me, while there are employees with badges that are identified, I'm here to help. Picking their nose. Just with nothing to do. It, wishing somebody would come up and tap it, them and say, will you help me fill out this job application? It just goes back to the statement. People want to do business where business is being done. Enthusiasm breeds enthusiasm. So when you have an employee that's actually moving and doing things, people want to know what's going on with that person. Mm-hmm. Why? Why, why? Why is that person involved? Why is that person being busy? They must know what's going on? There you go. You may feel bad for bothering an employee. That's what they're paid to do. So why do you feel bad about asking them to do their job? Do you feel bad about asking a waiter to do his or her job? I don't feel bad about asking someone to do their job. I feel bad about interrupting the job someone is currently doing. Oh, okay. Well, here's the fun part. In retail, Mm -hmm. most of the time, they have a handful of tasks to get them through the day, Mm -hmm. but their number one priority is you. Or if I see a a staff member with a customer... I will just wait. He's about 10 feet away. Is I won't get any closer than that. Just wait for them to get finished because I I want that I want that retail clerk or I need that person's assistance and I'm going to need 100% of their attention and I just feel like it's only respectful for me to allow them to give the other customer 100% of their attention. And I mean, really, if you're in Target, you're it's not a life and death situation. You can wait 10 minutes. Exactly. But you understand the respect. So now you walk up to that same clerk, but they've got a giant earpiece over their ear. How much of, your, how much of their attention are you going to garner? Probably very little, but I also tend to, when I'm looking for store clerks, I, 
simply because I'm one of those people that'll stay up at four in the four a.m. and think about that one word that I said in a weird tone that was stupid. Like the the rest of us all do it, and I at times consciously try to avoid that. So I will have my question. I'll have thought about it. I'll have rehearsed it, and I'll say it eleven times faster than I ever intended to say it. Charlie does that all the time. Okay, and so, Charlie is an extremely educated person that I respect greatly. So, <laughs> There are so many times he's been in the middle of a conversation, could not come up with a response. Complete flatline. Like, no clue how to respond. I always thought he was just thinking to himself, this is uh, like when me and another nurse were sitting here, and we got asked about medical marijuana, and we both gave our opinions, and Charlie kept silent. I just thought, he's a physician, he's a and a very talented anesthesiologist, and he knows what conversations to avoid. Or he was just taking a nap. I, again, I don't, I don't wish <laughs> it could anything, have been any one of those. About the, uh, anything about the man. I, I respect him a, a lot, and yeah. I, I value his opinion a lot. So. It, a lot of times, Charlie is hyper aware of where he, the position that he holds. Okay, no, the, the man is anything but not intelligent. The right. man is extremely intelligent. Like, I love listening to him because he knows so much about subjects that I know nothing about mm-hmm. that if I can get him talking, I am absolutely mesmerized. And he, and, I'll, and he will literally talk for as long as he can hold a breath, and I absolutely love it. I don't know, I don't understand half of it. But to hear it and to hear the fervor and the enthusiasm and the passion with which he speaks of it makes it so much better. Now, are there takeaways? Absolutely. But I do believe that he is so hyper aware of the education that he has, the understanding that he has. I think there are times he just doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know how to interject. I think there's just a moment of that pause, that that extra... I should, but I shouldn't, or if, so if, I just don't. If, like I'd, I'd said before, I'd quoted Zach Galifianakis when he said he, he said he finds rudeness funny because rudeness is just someone who's just completely unaware because mm-hmm. very few people go out with the get up in the morning and go, I'm going to be a dick today. Like, not a great deal. Fewer people do that than we assume. Yeah, a few. Okay. A handful. You know, they don't wake up. I mean, that might be how their day turns out, but they don't, they're not brushing their teeth, looking in the mirror, and giving themselves, oh, I'm going to be a prick at pep talk. <laughs> but. He might be. I, I'm sure there's at least a couple, but not as many as we would assume. And maybe yeah. you said Charlie is hyper aware, so maybe Charlie is just one of those people that is aware. Mm-hmm. That way, what's the saying? It's, it's better to you know keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove the doubt. Like to this is a, to be aware that this is a conversation I don't want to be in. Yep. So I'm going to continue to sit on the couch and be silent and just be in the moment and yep. listen. I've been in multiple conversational situations where he's hearing everything, he's watching everything unfold, mm-hmm. says nothing, and and then I'm just like. Enraged with like, why didn't you say something? There was nothing to say, and I'm just like, but, 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 no. I, I give. A, I have a coworker with like extreme anxiety that every time we have a corporate meeting, that calls me and and wants to know what I thought about every vocal inflection <laughs> and every. Well, she said this, and like, she like, what do you what do you what do you think? Like, because like she asked this question, like referring to like the the COO of our company, and and many times I have to calm her down and just like, let's walk through this logically. 
you're not being fired. Yeah. You're a marketer and you have the highest numbers in the company. You are not being fired. Yeah, let's move on. Take a breath <laughs> and go see your patients. We'll have lunch. Chill out. So, I, I mean, there, there's, I guess it's the hyper-awareness can go in both ways, where, where Charlie is maybe aware that there's nothing to say, and, and maybe in situations where there's nothing to say, some people feel like, you got to say something. Like, you got to, like, you, that there's nothing to say, it's because you weren't smart enough to think of something to say, or, or I, I feel like maybe some people might, might tackle it that way. Yeah, no, or at least dealing with someone with the high anxiety. And I, and I do see that, but as it relates backwards to what I feel is becoming a more tangible issue is just the isolationism. For example, right now, you can pick up your phone. Right now. Yes. Not only can you order a coffee to be picked up, mm-hmm. you can have a bag of marshmallows, mm-hmm. a pair of fuzzy handcuffs. Yep. A bag of Doritos mm-hmm. and a box of Tide delivered to your door within minutes. I can have it delivered to, to right here in yeah. about 15 minutes because it's like, would you like this delivered to your location? It's like, yes. And yeah, it takes about 15 minutes. Which means you don't have to go to Patricia's. You don't have to go to Reesers. No. You don't have to go to Quick Trip. Like, you don't have to go to any of the stores that we... If I order a Coke, it's cold when it gets here, too. Which is shocking. There's also another company that does it with liquor, but they don't do it in Oklahoma yet. It's called like Mini Bar Express or something, where if you need an extra bottle of liquor for a party, you can open your phone and select um, Sapphire Gin, and a dude will bring a bottle to your front door and go, here's your gin, sir. Now, I will tell you that, that that's, not, that's not so far removed, because in New Orleans, when you live in the French Quarter, mm-hmm. you have the luxury of being able to order a made-to-order meal and request... Hey, can you bring a bottle of Jameson? Can you bring me a bottle of Sapphire? And they'll go, gotcha. And it all gets delivered on bicycle within a few minutes. Now, so this isn't so this is not old. In a way, is this not just an evolution of ordering takeout? Yes. But I think we're getting so far to a point where we don't have to go grocery shopping anymore. No, Walmart's new program where they'll even Put it the, where someone will show up while you're at work and put your groceries away in the refrigerator, freezer, and cabinet for you. You just have to leave the key out for them. I've seen Walmart employees. I'm not having those people in my house. No. And it's not that they're lesser or better people than I am. It has nothing to do with that. I don't know. You don't go in my house. It's yeah, just I like that. I, I wouldn't expect anybody else to welcome strangers into their house. Exactly. Like, I don't know you. And I think that goes back, again, going to the isolationism isolationalism, here's maybe a deeper rooted point to make before we get into the other two topics. Gone are the days where we know where our food comes from. And I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Decades ago, you knew that Mary had your fresh eggs. Tom the butcher had the freshest meat. Mm -hmm. John the farmer was the guy that you got your corn from and got your flour from. Like, you knew these people. You knew where your food comes from. Mm-hmm. And then you, but I mean that 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 I don't want to sound like a millennial here when I say, well, but then capitalism, because then you had factory farms and you wanted to maximize yep. profit and drop yep. expense. Yep, which I totally get, but I do think there is 
some other things that happened along the way before capitalism really stepped in. We still have farmers markets, even though they're horrifically, we feel like they're horrifically overpriced. Like this Saturday, if you want, you and I can go down to the farmers market on 15th Street and we can load up on fresh vegetables, fresh eggs. And there's a, I don't know, I haven't been there in a while. There is a butcher there too with a freezer trailer and you can put in a meat order. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, there is a butcher there. See, he has the weird little steam-powered machine that sits out there. Just kind of, yeah. Little unsettling. Yeah, it's just the guy. I don't, I don't know much about the guy, but he has that weird steam, steam-powered machine that doesn't really do anything. It just kind of runs, just as like this antique uh, steam thing. And uh, yeah, no, he is a butcher and runs has a ranch, and you can say, I need you know two sides of beef, and I need prime, or I need some steaks, or and um, depending on if you drive around like I do, because I think just last week in driving from hospital to hospital, I drove just under a thousand miles between Monday and Friday of last week, wow. between Oklahoma, Missouri, and Kansas, and there are uh, there's a place called Meats and More out towards Coweta where it's literally, or at least when I first went there, it was a butcher's that set on the edge of where a ranch met the highway. Okay. And, yeah, you'd walk in, and it was, we slaughtered six cows today. Talk about fresh. It's literally three hours old. Do you want some steaks? Do you want some burgers? And, yeah, I used, we used to go to them all uh, quite often. But I think we've lost so much of the art of that. And I think the more, and, and again, it, it is really going back to my own sensibility in the way that I watch humans behave. And it's my own observations. I have no, like, I'm stupid. Let, I mean, let, let's call a spade a spade. I'm not the smartest person. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. But I do watch a lot. I do form my own perceptions based on what I'm, what I'm seeing. And the further down the rabbit hole we get with being able to do everything from the phone, we lose sight of the, of the importance of being to do that in real life, in real time, with a real human. And, and I'm not saying that it's pervasive yet, but I think we're on a very slippery slope, and I think we can fall down that hole very quickly. Do you think that's one of the things that leads to concepts like prepper culture? Which culture? Oh, preppers. Um, and I, and I, I don't mean them, them derogatory because one of the, as I understand it, and I don't mean just like what you saw on TV on like the prepper reality show, but it's a culture of people that want to know how can I farm on my own? Um, how do I cultivate this to bring it to market in the event that I have to sell this or trade this? For goods that I need, where the person where I don't have a square, and the person isn't going to pay me with a credit card. Is it more of the prepper culture, or is it more of going back to what we built our original economies on? I mean, I, I know they, as I understand it, and I mean no disrespect to anybody who is a no. prepper. It is people that are often made fun of, but and I, that's not my that's not my goal here. But um, I've seen interviews and there were people have prepared a skill um, one person I read I saw an interview with where they were manufacturing learned how to manufacture ammunition saying because whenever you need me was when you can't go to At, when you can't go to Atwoods or Academy you're gonna have and you don't know how to do this I'm the guy you're gonna have to do business with and I want to make sure I have the product to trade with you I, I just think that goes back I wouldn't say that that's anything of a prepper mentality I think that would be more of 
going back to where we started mm -hmm. and the basis of all commerce, it, it's much like having a blacksmith. You had a blacksmith. Mm -hmm. You had a butcher. You had a tannery. You had mm -hmm. a dressmaker. Like you had all these people that had these skill sets. A haberdashery. You had a haberdasher. Let's let's be very careful with that because, in my opinion, a haberdasher is something that is sorely needed for the majority of men that I see walking down the street. Okay, I saw the haberdasher was a hat shop. Am I wrong? No, that happens. Okay. We have a haberdasher just up there. Upstairs? Yeah. And that's all he does. Is hats. No, clothing. Clothing, okay. Because, like, I gotta, I gotta see... Mike at Pinpoint and get fitted every time I need a new suit and it's yeah. a really awesome experience because you were talking about retail before yep. I, you don't shop he shops yep. and you do what he says and by the time you're said and done you have a beautiful suit or mm -hmm. slacks or shoes or whatever it is and it's fitted to you and no matter what's going to happen you're going to leave you look fantastic yeah with clothes that fit yep. and look good on you yep and that's the difference again that goes back to that interaction it's funny that you bring up the term haberdasher because there are now services online that you can stand with your smartphone, take pictures of yourself, submit them to a website, and they will deliver a custom-tailored suit. I'm going to tell you right now, that scares the hell out of me. I don't think it because I have been to Mike, Michael, mm -hmm. over there, and... The way he, uh, I don't want to say pokes and prods you, because <laughs> I don't want it to sound in the negative, but though my first time over there, I didn't know what to do. I've never experienced something yeah. like that before. Every time I'd ever been to buy uh, professional clothing, it was, look, I, I know what I want. I'll, I'll browse, leave me alone. I, I didn't like retail salesmen when it came to clothing because I was a little self-conscious and all sorts of stuff. And I walk in and there's this five foot tall dude trying to tell me what to do and I'm like I, I just need a suit he's like when do you need it by so I need it for Thursday thinking I'm just going to buy a suit off the rack not knowing how it worked and he kind of gave a big sigh was like okay come on I'm like what do you, what do you mean come on I'm just going to browse he's like no no we're not browsing you, it's Monday you need it Thursday we have work to do put this jacket on oh it looks bad take it off now put this on take it off oh wait, wait. how big are you hold on move let me get the tape measure and pulling on me, and I'm like, this is this is a weird experience. And then when I finally got a suit that fit, and I'm standing in front of the mirror, oh, I get it now. Yep, I look great. <laughs> and I've gone back now. Like, and I've gone back. It's like I need a shirt, and I'll go to Target. I'm like, you know what? This doesn't fit really well. But that one that I got from Mike, like, fits Mike got fit really well. So I go back over there, and I'm like, I like, hey, I need a shirt. And he's like, I remember you, and walks straight over. And goes, what color? You don't pick it up. Uh, I want like a small check with a green. Hold on. There you go. Put it on. Let's make sure it fits. Do I have to send it to the tailor and you come back tomorrow? Like that retail experience is something that like I'd only ever experienced there. Maybe it goes back into what you were saying before about at the very beginning of, of retail changing. No, he doesn't have an earpiece in his ear. Nope. It's a family business. It's him, his dad, his mom, and another Spanish guy who has really excellent cologne. I don't know what it is, but he was helping me with the tie one time. And all I could think about is, this guy smells amazing. This guy smells really good. What, like, you don't, I was embarrassed to ask, like, what are you, what, I don't want to be like, you know, like the Hollywood red carpet thing, what are you wearing? But like, dude, can I get a bottle of that? My it wife will love it. Won't smell the same on you. Whatever, whatever it was for him, it was great on him. It won't smell the same on you. 
So you know more about uh, retail, fashion retail yeah, than yeah, I will I, ever I, know. So. And I hate that part. But the retail experience is going away at that level, in my opinion, because of the isolationism of the mobile device. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'll agree with you on that part. And the faster we go down that rabbit hole, the more we lose that ability to be able to just call somebody that knows who we are. No, if I need something, I have Amazon Prime. I bought a cheese grater on Amazon Prime. I really did. And along the way, you could have picked up some... In my cabinet. And you could have picked up some underwear. You probably could have picked up an inflatable boat, a couple books. And odds are, you could have probably had like six pounds of beef delivered to your house. But And that's not a bad thing. But what I am saying is, the further we go down that rabbit hole, the less we understand the experience of being in a retail environment where there is that conversation, there is that exchange, there is that understanding. Humans by and large, especially now, I don't know the numbers and we'd probably have to dig them up. I would bet money, we're at a point now with saturation of smartphones, we're probably at 60% of the world's population. I, and I'm, and you have smartphones? Yeah. I would, I would argue more. Can't though, because you gotta remember, you got major populations in third world countries that have no smart devices. So you gotta be very careful with that statement. And then you've got to decide whether it's an iPhone or an Android platform because iPhone, by and large, when you look at heat maps, is in all of the primary metropolises where Androids are in the outlying areas. So it, Because Android is a more open... Um, it's more affordable, period. has okay. nothing to do with open. has everything to do with affordability. And the fact that Android's available on a thousand different models, iPhone and iOS is available on one. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, but, it's far more available, it's cheaper. It's... But that's a different conversation. Where I'm getting at is, the further down the rabbit hole we go with relying on our mobile device for everything that we buy, we forget that you might have that person right next door. And I'm going to relate this to an experience that literally just happened today. A young woman comes in today asking about dead ringers, or E-rings, or tone rings to put on her drum heads mm -hmm. she bought a kit from another store that is literally in the retail hell to get to i mean it's the worst drive you have to make to get there from where we are she bought a seven piece drum kit nobody makes an eight inch tone ring she is three blocks from us she had no idea we existed until today but because she opened up her smartphone, looked for whatever she looked for, she didn't know we existed. When she came in, she was very specific. Oh, I'm looking for these things. And I said, well, what's going on? Why? Well, maybe because, like, what, I, don't get that, I don't get that conversation from Amazon. I don't get that no. conversation um, from, from, from anything. If nope. I go to any website to order, you know, a product, I don't get the, well, what, what's the application? Because there might be a better product for you. Yep. Conversation is a non-existent thing. Exactly. So, again, we further remove that human element. Mm -hmm. So, here's the fun part with this. She ends up buying a kit. She's talking about, she's already gone through the moon, the moon gel process. She's getting tone rings because she's not able to get the, the body and the tone out of her drum kit that she wants. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, did you just recently buy your kit? She's like, oh, yeah, I bought it a couple weeks ago and this and that. I said, are you still using the stock heads? She's like, well, yeah. I said, okay, now we're getting somewhere. I said, the more, and we went into this big discussion about how I can help, and she didn't even know, A, we existed, B, that that was an option, or C, 
that there were options because the retailer that she went to didn't tell her anything. She said, I want this. They said, here it is in a box. Toodaloo. They gave her no education. They gave her no opportunity to learn about what she wanted to do. And within the five minutes of talking with her today, I said, well, look, there are some options. We can do this or this. I can show you this trick. I can show you this trick. Here's the difference between this and this, and here's why you're not getting what you want out of that kit as a stock item. But we can help you. She's like, I just had no idea you were here. I'm like, well, here we are now. I think we're so quick to open up iPhone Maps. We're so quick to open Google and look for a business. Or Yelp. Yelp. I think we're missing a lot of the intrinsic opportunities that are right next door. In its own way, actually relates to <laughs> the conversation of to port or not to port your resident drumhead. Again, that depends on your application. That's what what I think about porting a a drumhead. Do I do I think it changes the sound? If you had some diagnostic equipment that could measure the exact frequency yes it probably does does it change it to something that you can hear and identify oh that's a ported head that's not a ported head i don't think so i think porting a head which when i say porting a head putting a four five or six inch hole in your bass drum in the resident head reso head of your bass drum serves the purpose of to put a microphone there to make life easier for the sound guy, that's it. That's the end. That's the the long and the short of it. That's the the end all, the beginning, the alpha and the omega of porting a head. To put a mic in it, that's that that's it. My Rezo head does not have a hole in it because I have a mic mount suspended in the middle of the drum, so I do not need a hole in it. Yep. I have before I had that mic put in it. I had. Sound guys shove the microphone up against the rezo head and complain that they're never going to get, that they can't get the right sound because the mic's not inside the drum. And then when I'm hitting the bass drum, the rezo head is moving and it's clicking against the the mic and it sounds awful. So many reasons for all those issues. I've personally, (laughs) I can almost, almost give me my phone to look at particular gigs, dates, and I can tell you the date and time that these events took place in my life. They they happen all the time. Okay. But you're not alone. So back in the, I want to say late 60s, mid 60s, a sound guy convinced a drummer to cut a hole in his drum head to shove the mic inside of it. I'm sure somebody thought, well, you know, the sound is taking place inside the drum, and then it's echoing out. The sound initiates inside the drum, and then we hear it as those sound waves travel across the room. If we want to get the best sound, let's get it at the source. Like, if I can sell that to somebody. Yeah. I could easily sell that. Yeah. The whole is really, I firmly believe you're right. It's about convenience. Again, I'm going to go back to my statement. I'm not smart. And I think the people that design drums and drum shells are far smarter than I am. So when they map out the plies, the bearing edges the depth, they're looking at all those factors. How many vents are in that drum? They're already deciding how that drum's going to aspirate. They're calculating, well, this drum is this size with this type of thing is going to do this, so we need to put four vent holes in it. And just um, just the other week I was practicing with one of my bands, and um, I happened to be in a band where everybody is also a drummer. So in, in that band, uh, you know, yeah, Nye yeah. is a drummer. Nye is 
a really good drummer. Yes, he is. And the other gentleman... And comes from great lineage. ...knows what drums are. Yeah. But anyway, we, he had a different idea on a song we were writing, like, hey, I have an idea, can I show you? And handed me the guitar, so I played the song on guitar instead of front of the brain. Just to kind of, again... I'm not a jerk. Let's say hey, if you have a better idea, let's but you're hear gar- it. You're a guitar player too, though. But I, I've been a guitar player for about ten years longer <laughs> than I've been a drummer. So I'm playing the song and kind of listening to what he's doing. And it was amazing. Is the the drum head they gave me for the band that had the logo on it has a five inch port in it, and I'm standing in front of the port, and I was amazed at how much air was actually coming out of that Leaving. drum. I never Leaving. realized how much air was coming out of that drum, and yeah. he wasn't. I feel like I I put my foot through it. When I, when I play, and I don't feel like he was stomping my pedal as the way I do, and I'm still amazed at like, man, there's a, I'm like five feet, and this, there's a lot, like I can feel like my pant leg is moving with the air from five feet away from a five inch porthole. Yep. And the more air that you let leave the drum means the drum is no longer vibrating. Yeah, that's pressure. That's that's energy that's leaving without making sound with it. So again, we're going back to the original question, why? Why are we putting a hole in a drum that needs to have the timbre, to have the proper aspiration, to have the proper tone, but yet we're going to let all the air out of it? Because to quality suspend a microphone in a drum takes an extra three or four hundred dollars. Okay. I, I'm just... I'm just, but, just but in that same... Throw something out there. Right. you got to order a mic, you got to have a port, you got to have a Kelly shoe or a competing product, and then you've got to take it apart, then you've got to know what you're doing and taking the lug casings off and mounting it in there and then remounting the lug casing so everything suspends and not off... you got to put it off-center. There is a skill set that you need to have that most of us don't have. You end <laughs> up on Facebook or listening to a bunch of threads where people don't really know what they're talking about. It's what their dad told them or it's what they heard somebody else say or their favorite drummer say, so we're cutting a hole in the drum. Somebody had asked me, my opinion was, are we getting more stupid as a culture, as a society? And I said, or is it that now those people have a voice that didn't before? And, and, I'm, and again, I'm not insulting, but what I am saying is there's so much ability to spread bad information that it's almost like spreading herpes. I will ask you, is it, do we look at it as stupidity or is it, I will say, other information? And, and what I'll cite yeah. for that is our civilization makes iPhones. However, Egyptian culture, or we'll say... Um, Trying to think of the famous South American Shit. ruins and Mayan, things like that. Aztecs. That or we look at some of the Mayan temples and pyramids and things like that, oh, and we look at and there. You can simply flip over to the History Channel to find a bunch of people that want to oversell it. But I can make an iPhone, but I can't build a pyramid. That am I dumb because I don't have that knowledge, or are they dumb because am I dumb for not being able to build a pyramid? Are they dumb for not being able to build an iPhone? It's what's your goal? I think there's there's absolutely, and and I do think there's a modicum of that as well. But I think the proliferation of bad information is so widespread and so pandemic that now people take that for gospel instead of hey, let's take a logical approach to this. Let's take a really hard look at this and. Before we really believe that this is the end-all be-all or that's the end-all be-all, let's ask ourselves those questions. What really is that thing? And I'll give it to you in, in a very simple explanation. 
the YouTube video says best snare drum sound ever in five minutes or less, but the video is 20 minutes long. In that case, I would say someone would have to, I mean, in, if I were to say I'm going to make a video on best hot wings in five minutes, it's going to take, it might take me five minutes to dress my hot wings, but it takes me longer than that to teach someone how to do it. It's like uh, there was a YouTube, a YouTube video and a video that got circulated on Facebook um, about a month ago of it was a side-by-side -side video of a guy doing a math problem and a teacher teaching elementary school kids how to do a math problem using a common core math method and he was making fun of it by showing I used the method I learned in school 20 years ago and I was able to make a pot of coffee in the time it took her to do the math problem but at the same time yes you are both doing the same math problem you are doing it and making coffee she is teaching it to 20 children that takes a different amount of time. Well, I would agree with that. In, in my defense of the statement, mm -hmm. if you're going to create something that's, that is demonstrative, just demonstrate it. Show it. Don't explain it. Don't get into the explanation. Put it in the show notes. Put it in the YouTube notes. Make it more digestible. Make it more palatable. Make it more consistent and perhaps make it more in line or homogenous with what the title is. I, I can understand that because I, I scrolled to a video before like if I was wanting to accomplish something so I'm, I'm playing Skyrim or something and there's a mission I can't get past so I'm going to watch a video see how somebody else does it. If there's a 3 minute video and a 15 minute video I'm not watching the 15 minute video. Exactly. If you're going to say best snare drum sound in 5 minutes show me what you're doing maybe leave me a link to and let me give you the long version in this video where I tell you everything that I did to get there. So, for example, I wrote and taught our snare tuning master class. The document is much shorter, but the class itself is much longer. Because mm -hmm. we're dealing with a lot more things that are happening all at once. We've got 10, 15, 18, 20 people in the classroom answering more questions. There's a lot more demonstration. We're going over a lot more questions all at once. If you're going to say it's five minutes, make it a five-minute video. Keep it consistent. That, that's one thing that I look for. And I hate to say that I get stuck down the YouTube tunnel, but God, it is so easy. And I find so many people that have zero credibility that are giving such bad advice, but people are taking it as gospel. Now, for us as a shop, here at the drum shop, that makes it difficult because now we're trying to get above the white noise with fact, but people are already having these maybe bad ideas or this bad information instilled in their head, now I've got to convert them and say, well, let me give you something else to look at. Let me have you take a look at a different approach. Maybe this will make more sense. That boat is much harder to lead than what it once was. Now, see, is it as much bad information or is it marketing? And well, what, what I'll say for that is I... Before I became a nurse, I worked for uh, several local news outlets, and we had, um, I remember asking what was going on when I went outside for a cigarette at the time with the audio guy, and a girl bought, popped up and handed him a box of CDs and said, here you go, and he said, thanks, she got in the car and drove off, and he just tossed them in the trash. I said, what, what's that? He goes, oh, it's just press releases. I went, you're throwing away press releases? He goes, no, you don't understand. Um, this stuff is, let's say, and I'm just going to pull a company out of thin air, Let's say Remington 
needs to uh, firearm cells are down, so they manufacture a truthful looking or a reasonably a, a factually appearing news article with an inter- with an interview and uh, an anchor and all that stuff about Bob Bob had a home invasion and Bob fought off the intruder with his Remington shotgun. Yep. Factual and again, just pulling a company out of my butt. So we they run that to increase sales so Steve's drumhead maker says, "Dude, we haven't sold. We're, our sales are down of our, you know, coated white drumheads. Let's get a dude and make a video that looks like Drumio, and have him talk about and have him give like a lesson. But it uses our products and why our products are the best one. And then we're not going to deliver good information, but we're going to deliver the information that leads people to buy our product. That's fair as well. I mean, and just again, an idea. Yeah, and I think it all varies." I think it's a viewer. Let's cut to the chase. Okay. Stop trying to... Let's put away all this other stuff. Give me the data. Show me what you're doing. Show me why I should go this route. So you've got to be motivated to do that by something other than selling the product you're sponsored by? Oh, absolutely. So to make a YouTube video, you have to put in work. You have to have a camera. You have to be able to edit that video. You're going to have to write. It's not... It's not something that you can just do well on a whim. So there's got to be an extra, there's got to be a reason you want to do that. And altruism about proper drum tuning is limited. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Tuning, much like porting, really becomes a very personable thing. Mm -hmm. And as as we touch on that concept of porting the resident head for your kick drum, it can go a number of ways. I disagree with it fully and wholeheartedly, but I do see the value of it for certain applications. I think it takes away from the overall sound or the way that that drummer is going to communicate with his audience. So what then would you say about drums that are produced and sold with the the factory reso head that's already already ported? I don't want to name any companies. Well, there's there's only really one. Some of the high-end companies will showcase a vintage or a reissue kit that will be like it was back in the day. And trust me, I bust their balls all the time about it. I a big old 8-inch hole, right? 10-inch hole, a, a, a high-end right drum company. Now, a, a drum company that I would jump at the chance to have one of their kits. But every single puts time... A, 10 inch hole right in the dead center of the rezzo head yep and it's a shell that's going to vibrate a little differently and i tell them all the time don't send me drums that way because every time i've seen you put them on the shelf you you have a different head on you have a solid rezzo head it comes with the one that comes with the the the, the drum is sold with but you put the solid head on it so that you get the full the full set this is what the drum sounds like you get the timbre of the drum Mm-hmm. And and I'm going to stand by that contention after years and years of working with hundreds and hundreds of drums over the years and enough drummers, professional, enthusiast, recreational and beginner, enough of them bring their drums to me that they trust me enough to be able to tune them and make them sound good. Mm-hmm. Unequivocally, a ported rezzo head is the worst thing you can do for your kick drum. You literally let all of the air out of the drum effectively. You've made a non-contiguous unit that no longer shares all of the vibration within itself. 
do you think, because this is something that I've seen you educate a lot of people on, this is something that you had to educate me on a few years ago when, when I first came in here, was what drum, and this is also what we went over during your stair tuning class, there's what drums sound like when you're sitting behind them and playing them, and what drums sound like when I'm listening in my car yep. to my favorite band yep. on my iPhone through the stereo. It's the what... I feel like I have a very nice one-of-a-kind drum kit. It does not sound like that. It, 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 will, it will not sound like that. It's not been compressed. It's not been mixed. It hasn't been yeah. sent through a board. And I think a lot of people, and I also feel like that's like one of the main things that people sell, and I'm not putting down moon gels, but I think moon gels and tone rings and all these other damping accessories, materials. damping materials, are doing because whenever you're listening to a drum kit on a record, it's, the decay is immediate. The bass drum, almost, I mean, you can't tell if they're playing an electric Roland kit. And again, Roland makes some of the nicest electric drum kits on the planet. You don't know if you're listening to an, a Roland kit or a mic acoustic kit or a CV700. Because it's all been compressed and mixed to sound, to have a quick decay. The hi-hats all sound exactly the same. Yep. That becomes a different conversation because now you're talking about the product within the recording studio to deliver a product now to... The general audience that is used to or accustomed or now trained to hear certain things. And then getting sold on, if you want your drums in your bedroom to sound like the record, you need this, this. $6,000 custom kit and then you need to port the drums and then you need to put on tone rings and 600 moon gel and, 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 and you got to put, put packing peanuts in the drums. <laughs> Which is just one I heard for the decay to put to fill your drums with packing peanuts, but use half as many peanuts as the diameter. So if you have a, if you have a ten inch drum, use five packing peanuts. <laughs> if you have a sixteen inch drum, use eight. Yeah, that was the math on the packing peanuts to have the appropriate decay so that it sounds like it does on the record you just bought. Let's also be clear: Are you speaking of decay, note comes off, or sustain of the drum? To shorten the sustain, to rapid the decay. Okay. Instead of bow, boom. Now we're starting to delve... For my sound effects there. Yeah, yeah. So now we're digging into a deeper hole because I'm a firm believer that you send 100% of the sound of that drum into the microphone. I, I agree with you. And then I went and recorded the last record I recorded... He put, a, the sound guy put a wallet, a whole roll of duct tape, and two rolls of toilet paper on my drums. And then made me use his cymbals because the way he had it compressed, my cymbals didn't sound very good through the board. So I ended up having to use his cymbals rather than the, rather than the cymbals that I had brought just for that recording. All of those went back in the bag and I used a bunch of cymbals that I would personally have not have used. But... That's what was available, and so like uh, for snare drum, snare drums ring when tuned in high pit. There is a overtone ring that you can go. hear yep. if you're standing about five feet from the drum. If you walk away from the drum, that ring disappears, and it's difficult to understand that because if you're playing the drum, you don't ever walk away while you're playing it, so you think everybody hears the ring. No, it's only you. I'm serious. Yep. When you put a microphone on it, that microphone is four inches from the drum, not ten feet from the drum. So they wanted to get rid of the ring in my snare drum, which 
I was playing a maple snare drum, an a eight ply maple snare drum with wood hoops, so it was had lots of body and tone. Super. So they butter. put literally half a roll of toilet paper and as much gaffer tape as he could all over my drum until it just made it sounded like you were snapping your finger. And all that did was a disservice to your recording. Yep, that the the record that is being pressed right now. That is how those drums were recorded, yeah. and we had to stop. Yeah, I had to take my bass drum apart because I have uh, an EMAD drum head with uh, an internal mic and nothing else in the drum. And when you listen to it through his board, it sounded like uh, basketball in an empty gym, which is something it doesn't sound like in reality. So I had to take it apart, and we he had uh, some uh, chairs on a deck next to the studio, and on those chairs were like little like grandma cushions. We had to take the cushions off the chair and go fill my drum with his patio chair cushions to dampen the sa- this echoey sound that doesn't exist in reality. So yeah, I went in to record with the idea I'm going to give him as much information as possible with this with this one dude. So back to porting, porting for to make life easy for sound guys. That's and whether you choose to wear boxers or briefs, port or not port, is not the point. I do believe that it is not something you should do arbitrarily just because you get a new drum set. I don't think that when you get a new drum head, you got to automatically port it. Take the time, listen to the drum with it solid, and when you've got a sound guy that flat out says, "Hey man, you got to cut a hole in it," say, "Great, where's my sixty bucks?" I'll happily cut a hole in it, but it's going to cost you sixty bucks. That's what a new rezo. That's what a decent rezo head costs. And at the end of the day, the sound guy will probably shut his pie hole and move on with his day. He'll give you a little grief. Well, I can't get a good kick drum sound, really, because if you come six inches off the drum, you're going to get a great kick drum sound, especially with that PG fifty two that you decided to buy for a hundred bucks instead of spending the money on a D six or a Beta fifty two and really getting a good kick drum sound. Now we're talking about sound men not doing their job for the drummer, but making sure everything else sounds fantastic. I will say, since I've had my bass drum internally mic'd, every time I have told the sound guy, hey man, there's an XLR input on the side, I've got a D6 on the inside, they all said, oh cool, and, and went and mixed it real quick and it sounded amazing. Yep, and they're done in seconds. Yeah, it was seconds. It was, oh, cool. And then the dude ran back to him, hit your bass drum. And I heard it go, go, go. Boom, 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 boom. Because, and then, yeah, it took 30 seconds. And you're done. I've never had any issues playing live with my internal mic. But boy, you put it next to the studio guys, and they get their panties all he watered He got up. real upset. Because he no longer has the control of your drum sound. I mean, we also, I mean, we weren't recording at Atlantic Records either. It was a... A small local studio. So I mean, I mean, at that time, there's going to be a difference of experience. There in Tulsa, there are several guys who are absolutely brilliant, and yep. there are several guys who I had the money to buy a studio, and I think music is cool. Therefore, now I'm an engineer. Uh, yep. So we're very prolific, unfortunately. As we figure out a way to kind of come back to this, to port or not a port? Do you like boxers or briefs? I'm going to have to do a full-blown YouTube video for this. I, I really am. Because there are so many questions that have to be addressed and so many things that have to be answered. But I did want to touch on it right now. And at the end of the day, it's a boxers or brief thing. But still, with your analogy of boxers or brief, I, this is how I grew up. So I know you've heard this. 
the you know you got to wear boxers because briefs are too tight. It lowers your sperm count. Yeah, whatever. All right, so then no matter what, there's going to be some some woo, some crazy. Yeah. Well, well, you know, I heard that you got to do this because it'll make the fairies mad if you don't, or <laughs> so it'll be something crazy. So. In hindsight of all that, we're just gonna have to make a video. I agree. I Let's mean, talk about mountain bikes. <laughs> yeah. Especially the one that's been staring at me for like two hours now. This Orbea, which are all one beautiful handmade in Spain. It really is a fantastic machine. My first six cars weren't as cool as this. I, I actually, I could agree with that statement. <laughs> with the Breck Epic team and this Breck Epic adventure that we're doing, Crank Brothers has stepped up and sent me a set of their synthesis wheels and one of their dropper seat posts. I haven't ridden the new wheels that originally came with this bike yet, but I was riding uh, Ibis carbon wheels with DT Swiss 350 hubs. This wheel set is way better. Now, you used to build wheels. Yeah. That's how you paid your bills, so yep. you know about wheels. This isn't just... I'm okay with pre-built wheels. I'm okay with them at the upper echelon. I think what really changed my mind originally was the, the Mavic Cerium or Cerium you want to not pronounce the K. I think that was the day that I really understood what a company could envision for wheels. So I became a little bit more open to the concept. I do think that there is nothing better than a or hand-built set of wheels, but these wheels are really, really incredible and paired with that Orbea OE, that bike rails. I'm not going to lie, it's an honor because these wheels are fan-freaking-tastic. When I got to Denver to visit Basecamp Cyclery and build my new bike, like literally, we built the bike, I was on the bike that night, that bike railed. So I, I managed to get an hour on Saturday, I got an hour and 20, hour and 30 on Sunday, and then when we did the big ride on Monday, that same ride that I did two years ago versus this year, as much as 12 minutes off of certain sections, on a bike that I barely had three hours on. Now. Was I as fit as last year? Eh, I was a little bit off. Is this a completely different bike than what I was riding? Yes. From a hardtail to a full suspension, 100% different. Is full suspension always faster? Yes. I will tell you right now, I don't care who it is. Oh, you're making them mad now. Oh, I'm gonna. <laughs> like, it's gonna, I'm gonna get into trouble, but hands down, if you test A and B, same level bike, same rider, same course. Hands down, they're going to be faster on full suspension. Was, was I excited? Was I half tired? Was I blown away by the amazing bike that I'm riding? Yes, 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 and yes. But here's the other part of it. I'm riding tires now that I haven't ridden before in a combination that goes against all of my original thinking. I was going to ask you about your tires because uh, as I've been riding with you, that is a much larger block than what, than what, than what you're used to. You usually ride a very fast tire. Small, very small, small block. Very little rolling resistance, yep. a very fast tire. These, I don't know what they are, they're Continental, which... Well, there's a Trail King Trail King tires. I think it's a Cross King. I always forget these, because their names are so different. 
they it looks like yeah. the kind of tire I would enjoy because I like a big tall block that's going to dig into the mud and stick there. Yeah. But might have a little bit more rolling resistance. The other problem that I'm faced with with these tires is right now it's set up in the literal opposite of how I would ever have set up my tires. So in my world, I've got the front tire in the rear and the rear tire in the front. Now, as I'm get, literally as I'm building this bike, Harley's like, no, this is the way they're going to roll faster. You just have to trust the tire designers. And I flat out said, okay, here's the thing. It goes against my conventional thinking of running tires in the past that look like this, but I'm stupid, and Continental's way smarter than I am in tires, so okay, I'll give it a whirl. I did not know you had different tires front and back on a bike. Yep. Because I have, I'm, we're not sponsored by any brands, I have Maxxis Recon. Which are great tires. And I've really enjoyed them on my, on my uh, Cujo 1 bike. And they dig into the mud, they stick, they don't slip. I've got plenty of grip. I feel like they're, they do everything I could want them to do. And they're tubeless, I'm not going to get any pinch flats. They'll run, they run great at high pressure and low pressure. I've had a good experience with my Maxxis Recon tires. But I guess I never looked close enough. I have not noticed that there is a different front or back tire. My car has the same tires in all four wheels. Different application, different weight distribution. So, yeah. And I am riding a hardtail. Tire differentiation really started in dirt bikes. I say dirt bikes and mountain bikes. Um, years ago, with a tire called the, really called the Farmer John. Okay. I think it came out maybe right as you were born or just before you were born. Okay. The Farmer John was by Tioga or Tioga, okay. depending upon which part of the world you're from. It was a rear specific tire. It was a very aggressive rear tire that was designed to climb and stick. So the chevrons worked specifically to dig into the ground to get you up the hill and up the, that terrain with a little bit more bite. Later on, there was the Farmer John's, I want to say, was, I think the Farmer John's cousin came out, which was a front-specific tire because they started to understand that tires on mountain bikes, in particular, much like motocross bikes, Front tires, rear tires were doing different things. Then came the Farmer John's nephew. Then later came the smoke, the dart. Then this just literal waterfall of all this new tire technology started to happen. Now, mind you, this is 30 plus years ago. So this is just thinking on the concept of my rear tire needs to push. Yep. And my front tire needs to roll and, and direct Correct. that power. Correct. So Wilderness Trails, WTB, they came out with their, their version of the Velociraptor and all these other tires where front and rear specific technology really started to take off. One of the things that really stepped, that kind of, in my opinion, changed the way tires worked was a gentleman by the name of Frank Stacy. And Frank Stacy probably has forgotten more about tires than I will ever know. Um... He was and is a tire designer for some of the major manufacturers of motocross tires. And he helped Specialized create the Team Master and Team Control. They were the tire that was to be beaten. Like my, my mountain bike came with WTV plus tires. And those, those things did not, they grabbed everything they touched and held on for dear life. I switched only to go tubeless after getting a pinch flat. But, but no, those, those things were amazing. 
and they did not look like they were going to roll as fast as they did, but they do. No, I was really impressed. I was skeptical because I saw everybody rode Maxis, and all the cool guys had that big yellow Maxis thing on the side of their tire, <laughs> and mine said WWTV, and I'm like, I don't have the cool tires, until I went out in um, ankle-deep mud and did not, and, and grabbed onto everything like Velcro. Yeah. I was like, oh, these are really cool. Yep. Well, and that was, and that's what happened with the Team Master and Team Control. They really, when they employed Frank, he really took his motorcycle tires that he had designed and built them for a mountain bike. That's that's really what they did. And I mean, I could show you the tires, and you would go, "Oh my God, they're the same things, just smaller." But Specialized really took that tire technology and started to develop more and more and more. And more. They worked on different compounds, different thread casings. I think that trend of front or rear specific tires really kind of took hold as as I call them line extensions the dirt controlled dirt master came out which was a more hard pack based tire so smaller tinier blocks designed to roll faster would move quicker then came the dirt baldy which was a semi slick it was knobbed on the edges but very tiny cross hatched tread area and that was really just designed to be your pretty much balls out this tires only thing that it can do is roll fast i saw a couple of those this one of the ones i was looking at um it was a it was a maxis tire because at the time i was thinking everybody else has maxis so i gotta have a maxis too um it the the it almost looked if you were looking at the head-on cross section of the tire it almost looked like a box yeah. Where my top, my, my tire tread is this, this real short block, and then as you went out to the edge of the tire, got taller to make this like 1980s flat top hairdo. Where I'm thinking, <laughs> or 1950s like flat top thing, I'm like, this thing's gonna roll upright, but like as soon as I corner, I'm either gonna dig in and fall over, or I think that's gonna be real weird. I how's that gonna corner? And I remember getting real weird about it and just going with Todd when he's like, I would go and recommended the recons for me for my application, yeah, which has been really great. Well, and, that, and therein lies that different questions. As we look at the way tires have, have gone, in my head, I now think a front tire should look like this, a rear tire should look like this. Now I'm riding tires that literally the exact inverse of what I'm used to. But the funny thing is, the rear tire, that in my opinion should be a front, is almost identical to the tire that I used to ride on the front. There was the Onza Porcupine, which really created that small block, very specific cornering pattern, the team control, the dirt control. There's a number of them. When we were building this bike up, Harley said no. Continental said do it this way to achieve this. And he said, they know more than you about tires. And I went, that's fair. Okay. Now, I will tell you that the first couple hours on these tires was very awkward. Because I'm so used to a smaller block and there's a gradual feel from vertical to leaned over, there's a much more gradual feel. This, as a front tire, you know, using, using the Trail King as a front, it really wants to grab stuff. Had you been riding a tire that just had enough give for a long time to actually get that extra grip? I mean, I, I feel Maybe. like extra grip is always, in my... In my um, amateur information about being a mountain bike rider isn't more I would feel like more grip is always more better 
yes. And that's, and that's one of the interesting things about the Crank Brothers synthesis wheels. Through their development process, they found that the rear wheel did things differently than the front wheel. So rear wheel drives, winds up, has to be stiff, front wheel needs to be compliant. So to your question, were my tires giving me that compliance back then, and that's what I'm used to, and now I'm able to trust the front wheel and the front suspension to do what it needs to do on the front, while the rear wheel and rear suspension does what it's supposed to do, there's part of me that says, yes, I, I think there's truth in all of that. And I think there's a big learning curve. Harley made a really good reference about dropper seat posts in his podcast, No Ride Around. You know, he talks about the hurdle of a dropper post. I have one. I'm still getting used to using it. I just don't because I forget I have it. I have a hard time adapting to one, but I'm doing my best. And there are some intrinsic benefits to using a dropper post. I'm still getting used to it. Accepting full suspension, accepting 160 mil of full suspension, accepting a 1x12 drivetrain, accepting hydraulic brakes, that's easy. Yeah, it didn't take me any time to get used to my hydraulic brakes. I thought, these are great. But a dropper seat post still, I'm trying, I'm working with it. It's awesome. I mean, that thing is a well-built dropper post. I, Crank Brothers did a great job on it. It's like growing up riding the bikes. We, you know, like when we were kids, we had bikes. Um, some of us had cooler bikes than others, but like I grew up, the general, I grew up with like Huffy and Pacific, were the bike brands we grew up with. We bought them at Walmart and Toys R Us, and that's what my parents bought us growing up. Yep. And we didn't have dropper seat posts. If we were going to go out and like in our like dirt bikes, like in like you know inverted commas here. Um, we didn't have dropper seat posts. You just rode that thing. So like even still, like what I know or what I knew the first time I went out with you for about riding a bike out on the trail was riding in the park as a child. There's no dropper seat. I still don't know what to do with my dropper seat post. Yeah. Uh, I try to do some of the tricks I've seen online where you drop the seat post when you're going downhill and that way you can hold the seat kind of between your knees a little bit when you get your pedals flat. It still, it still feels unruly the movement of the bike still feels unruly because I'm not used to, I'm not comfortable with allowing the bike to have that much freedom. I feel like independent of me mm -hmm. that I'm not confident that I'm still in control of the bike. Well, and that, and that may be the same thing that applies to the tires. I, I'm still getting used to the way all this stuff works and I find myself running into different, different barriers on my own right, but I have to trust the people that are smarter than me, okay, if you tell me this is going to work that way, and not to relate it to a terrible movie, but I'm going to. So in Days of Thunder, he has a crash. Tom Cruise's character crashes. He comes out of it, but he's having a hard time being in the car. There's some chaos happening in a race as he's trying to come back. He tells his crew chief, I can't do it, I'm having a problem, I'm having a problem, I'm panicking, panicking, panicking. And his crew chief made up some cockamamie story, and Tom Cruise's character believed it. And went, oh, well, okay. Because he trusted the crew chief? And he, cr and he trusted the crew chief. Because it was what the crew chief told him that was so critical. He said, the technology that you're using is designed for this. It will work. It will do its job. Just believe it. When I think back to that, I think about the way we used to treat certain team riders in the pits when I was a team mechanic. Oh, this isn't shifting right. This isn't feeling right. Really? Are you sure? Yeah, it just doesn't feel good. Okay, go see the soignee. Go 
go relax, go take a walk. We'll see you in a few minutes. What did we do with the bike? We just shoved it back up in the stand and walked and let him walk away. And we sat down. It was, we, we do kind of something similar that when I say this, you might think, well, that sounds cruel. A person's in, in, in medical field, we call it your locus of control. Mm-hmm. Control freaks and non-control freaks, we, we still have to feel like we're in control. And there's nothing wrong with that, but a scenario that I was taught is what I was taught. I, I don't recall that I ever actually did this, but it's what I was taught to do. Was if I was taking uh, an elderly person in a nursing home to the shower. A person in a nursing home has very little control over any aspect of their life. Most people don't even get to pick up their clothes. Their locus of control is microscopic compared to yours and mine. And one of the things they can control is the temperature of the shower. So when you take them to the shower, you set the water. Hey, how do you like this? They'll put their hand in the water. Oh, it's too too cold. Heat it up a little bit. Oh, it's too hot. That's the only thing they can control. And what was happening was patients would sit there and not avoid their shower, but that was the only they can control. So they would have the nurse or the aide constantly readjusting the shower thing because that's what they could control. They needed that control. So what we were told to do was after like at least three times to put our hand in there on the knob, not just tap it or do something, but do not move that knob. And after about three times to go, okay, that's right. Now you finally got it right. The patients would, 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 and whether they knew we were faking them out, I have no idea. That's what I was taught to do. I don't recall ever actually doing it to somebody, but that's what I was taught to do. That's what we did with, with certain racers. We just put the bike in the stand and, all right, all right, we'll take care of it. What did we do? We sat down and chatted. And when they looked like they were coming back this way, you get up there, work in front of it, you just spin in pedals and click it through the gears. Pop, 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 pop. Yeah, man, it seems to be working fantastic. You should give, go give it a whirl. They come back. Oh, my God, it's just better than ever. Well, I've noticed something. When I'm tired, I don't... Uh, it's, what I, it's what I figured out. I've, I've told you, like, the last three times we arrived that my, like, one of my gears is sounding terrible. And I've, I've realized the other day that that's one of my easier gears. So I'm shifting into that gear when I'm tired and I'm not pushing the thing all the way. So I'm not getting a complete gear shift. Yeah. So it's all on me not shifting the gear properly <laughs> and it's making a weird sound because I have basically told the bike to do X and it's doing it and X sounds like something going to fall apart. Well, that's something that Josh told me too, I remember, and I started thinking about that, because he's like, are you sure you're pushing the lever in all the way? Are you pushing it until it, until it clicks, or are you pushing it until the chain moves? And I realized on Sunday that I was pushing it in until the chain moved, not until it clicked, so the chain wasn't, so the derailleur was not moving up its full, it, would, it stopped when I let the lever go and stayed yep. there. Very true. So... Maybe fatigue, and they're annoyed about something else. Causes this is happening as a result, so I'm going to blame this because no. I'm too frustrated to sort the problem out. I don't doubt that in the least bit. And I'm hoping that the AC has not completely botched this half of the recording. I hope not. We're going to find out either uh, one way or another. Um, so, with your when you talk about, I have a question about rear suspension as long as we're on this. Yep. So, when you say your front suspension on this bike has how much travel? Only four inches, 100 millimeter. 100 millimeter, and then your rear suspension has? 100 millimeter. I don't like a lot of travel personally. I like enough to smooth out the bumps. Your rear shock is a fourth the size, yet you're getting 100 millimeters out of both. Leverage and ratios. Okay. It, it's a, it, I'm thinking of 
the shock compresses yeah. 100 <laughs> mil. Because I'd always heard that. I was like, oh, I've got 100 mil. Like, I, I can't remember what I have on my bike, but it's somewhere, it's it's in that area of 100 mils. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 a decent shock. It's a, it's a, it's a, what's it? Rock Shocks Recon. It's yeah. a, it's a good affordable fork. It's uh, a great I, fork. I think it's a good fork. Um, it doesn't travel a mile, but I'm looking at it going, oh, I've got a, a hundred mils of travel in the front, a hundred mil in the back. I'm like, you're, you've got a half inch of travel in the back. What are you talking about? Well, there's, there's a lot of math that goes into that. And again, it goes back to people that are way smarter than me. And the stroke of the rear shock based on the way the suspension moves equates to the overall travel. So at the shock, it's incremental versus the actual distance that it travels. So would I be accurate in saying that the, I'm probably using the wrong word, if I say the wheel, okay, the wheel hub on the front mm -hmm. will travel up and down 100 millimeters. Yes. The rear hub on the back wheel will move 100 millimeters. So, okay, so it is not the compression of the shock, it is how high the actual like center part of the wheel it's, it's all will leverage. move based on all of the uh, pivot. Yep. And all all that leverage. Okay. Yep. It gets, it gets super, super technical because the funny thing about rear shocks in particular is you have to have the right stroke for the right leverage to equate to the right travel. I, I do have another question about rear shocks. I've seen a lot of them, and you've, you've really piqued my interest in wanting to get a full suspension bike. Yes. The, what do I want to say, the geometry on this. So as I'm looking at your awesome Orbea, and I've seen some bikes in a similar fashion, your, what I'm going to call your seat stays, even though they don't attach to the seat. Mm -hmm. Seat stay bars are in a straight line, so I could, it looks like I could basically put a level on. There is a straight line from your hub down the seat stays connecting to the shock, down the shock, down your top tube and connecting to your. Yep. Or that is a straight line. Yep. That is not a unique design. Nope. I have seen where the, the shock, rather than being uh, horizontal, is vertical. Yep. Towards the bottom bracket. Is there a benefit, or is that how? You, is there any? Is there anything to to that? To that that angle change and having it compressed one way versus the other. Some say yes, some say no. I think it boils down to, and I'm trying to remember because I've been out of the mechanic side of bicycles for a long time. Technical question. Yeah, I understand that. And I, and I think it's tied to a rising rate or a falling rate of suspension. And, and again, I could be getting it totally wrong. I think with the shock going vertical, you create a different activity and a different motion. But when it is horizontal or in line with everything in one line from axle to top tube, I think that creates a different action. I've been out of it a long time, and I've only been back in it since we started opening the shop. I mean, I've, I've been back on the bike for three years. So there's a lot for me to learn, but... The design that I'm riding now is very reminiscent of my original AMP technology, my original FSR technology. So to me, this feels very natural and very much like I'm back at home because it's what I'm used to. I'm not going to say that 
the Giant Anthem with its technology or the Scott Spark, which I'm a huge fanboy of. I can't deny that. Scott makes awesome bikes. Like, really awesome bikes. But they didn't for the longest time. Right now, they make awesome bikes. They make great bikes. And they've done a really good job. There's so much great technology out there, much like there is drum technology. Really, who's doing what really that much better? What's really happening in the grand scheme of things? I can tell you that riding this bike, I am faster. I am putting out more watts. I am riding better. I am descending cleaner. I am more rested. I have a better facility on the machine. And it's literally box stock outside of the things that I swapped to meet our sponsorship demands. The, we, we talked about wheels earlier. So you brought it up. I've been saving this question about wheels. You talked about uh, building wheels versus buying pre-built wheels. And, and one bit, of the things yeah. I wanted to get at was I don't know anything about wheels. That is a round thing with spokes. I also have one on one of my cars, a round thing with spokes. Other than that, there's not really anything else to it. Yeah. And so my question was about torsion. Okay. So torsion being the force, the wheel moving, bending the spokes, and exerting the pressure on the hub, or the hub yep. bending, and then that force pulling on the spokes to cause that winding, that, uh, that torsion is... Is there a rule of thumb in any kind of measuring that, or is it just a I always go for the least amount of flex? So you have the, the, well, is there a rule of thumb to that, or is it just in this day and age? I don't have an answer for that. Okay. I could tell you decades ago, you built the wheels as stiff as you could to provide as much energy transmission, but that came back to using alloy rims with a steel spoke, with an alloy hub, with a limited size tire. Now, with the advent of 28s, 30s, 32s, as big as 38C tires on road bikes with carbon fiber rims, and now with 29ers as big as 2.6, small as 195 or 20s, I think there's a lot more with tire technology that's at play than there was before. Okay. And everybody's big rage, especially with tuneless, is talking about the, quote, inside diameter of the rim or the inside width. And I think that pertains, again, I'm still trying to play catch-up, mm-hmm. I think that pertains to the way the profile, of the profile of the tire shapes out. Now, what you can't see on the podcast is the width of a rim allows for the beat of the tire to sit at X, which means the shape of the tire has a shape of Y. I think the narrower, and, and again, a I'm qualifying this with I'm trying to remember it all. When you narrow the rim, you round the profile of the tire out. When you widen the rim, it blocks it out more. That would make sense. And that's where that true delineation of how tire technology is changing really becomes air apparent. So the tires that I'm running now are on these synthesis wheels and the Continental Trail King up front I would have never used as a front five years ago, much less 20 years ago. Like, there's no way I would have used that as a front tire. But it works as a front tire so much so that I would be half tempted to run the Trail King in the reverse on the back. Just two Trail Kings? Yeah. I would, I, because Colorado's going to be a completely different beast. The Breck Epic event is going to be six days of I don't know what. 
I have no time to recon the trails. I can only watch YouTube videos, but at the end of the day, until I'm on those trails, I don't know what tires are going to work. So you say six days, so like six races? Six or races. one race that lasts six days? Six races back to back. Okay. Race, rest, race, rest, race, rest. Six days. I would love to see. Are there, is there anybody, I think maybe the Litville might be the only thing that I'm aware of that comes close to this, is, so like there are like motocross races in parts of the world that are days long. And rally races that are yep. days long out in the desert. Has yep. anybody done this with, a, with mountain bikes yet? Where you're, all right, you're going to leave in Italy and I will see you in Spain. First one there on Thursday wins. Yeah, there's more, more and more of those self, self-sustaining events or self-supported events. They, they actually do, there's two versions of the race across America. So, for example, on, on road bikes, there's the Ram, the official race across America. You get from point A to point B as fast as you can with whatever means necessary. So you've got SAG support, meaning you've got a vehicle that's got wheels, it's got an extra bike, it's got a place for you to take a poop, it's got a place for you to catch a quick massage, a five-minute nap, whatever. There's another version of that that is completely unsupported, where you have to do everything yourself. They don't oppose you shipping food to destinations or shipping supplies to destinations. But you have to do everything. If you break down, you have to handle it. If you want to sleep, you sleep at your expense, and you might get passed. So there's a couple different points on that. I know there is a big point-to-point event in Nevada. I think there's another big one in Colorado. But I don't know that anybody's doing anything outside of that. But the Breck Epic is six loops in and out of Breckenridge. Six different loops. We're supposed to see as much as, I think the number's a bit exaggerated, but I'm supposed to see as much as thirty or 40,000 feet of elevation gain over six days. That, as an amateur cyclist, that sounds miserable. It is miserable, but I think there's a comfort and there's a tranquility in that misery. Yeah, you sent me the picture. Yeah, I saw the pictures of you in Colorado, and it was breathtakingly beautiful at the same time. God, it's so amazing. It was, it was stunning. And, I, and I've, I've been to places that are beautiful and taken a picture of it and wanted to show somebody the picture. And I'm looking at it going, this is close, but this isn't what I saw. Yeah. So I know as, as amazing as those pictures look, the reality of it is so much better. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things that the Breck Epic really brings to the table is because you're seeing, you're seeing six different sides of Breckenridge but you're still in the same ge- same geographical location, providing completely different perspectives on all aspects of that ride. And maybe that's what attracts people to it, or maybe it's just the sheer stupidity of an event where you can choose a three-day or six-day event. Well, Harley, Justin from E3 Fitness, Harley of Basecamp Cyclery, Colin of Basecamp Cyclery, myself and a handful of others are deciding to do the six-day solo. Their advantage is they're in Denver. They're in Colorado and points unknown. I'm in Tulsa. So I'm, compete, I'm trying to compete at, what is it, 9,000 9, feet to start? And we get up as high as twelve or 13,000? Turkey, Turkey Mountain, you can get on top, I mean, up, up on top of Turkey Mountain. We're, we're not getting high, don't we? I mean, that's it's still... Turkey Hill. I mean, I'm doing everything I can. But yeah, like there, there are a lot of inherent and a lot of built-in tactics that we can use to be better at altitude, but I'm still at only 700 feet elevation. 
looking up what what our I thought I would find it quickly of not what the uh, actual elevation would be of Tulsa. Yeah, I keep getting seven hundred twenty-two feet. I don't think that's right. No, it's about right. It's not high. And then, yeah, but I think Breckenridge is eighty-nine hundred feet or something. Nine thousand six hundred. So yeah, Breckenridge, so, Colorado. There you go. Feet, so. so we're starting at ten thousand. We're going to go up as high as thirteen thousand feet. There's an average, I think, of four to six thousand feet of climbing, four to eight thousand feet of climbing a day, for six days. And again, I'm roughing those numbers out because I'm getting conflicting information. And, and so I have no idea what I'm preparing for. With everybody that's helping, Symbol Marketing, Lake Shoes, Taruki Training, Hammer Nutrition, SRAM, Digit Soul. I mean, Jack Reclothing. Like, there's so many people that are involved in this, but yet at the end of the day, I still don't know what I'm actually preparing for because I see conflicting information from year to year. Well, consider this. A mile is 5,282 feet. 280 or 282, I don't remember, but it's just under 6,000 feet. Yeah. And you are sitting right now at 722 feet, and then you're going to go race at 9,600. So we're roughly, you're going to be two miles higher yep. with climbing in excess of one to two miles of climb. Well, you'll be one to two miles higher than you are now. So, when you, so will that mean you'll be as high as 20,000 feet, which sounds like, I mean, don't airplanes go that high? And when they say elevation gain, they mean cumulative. Okay. So over every bit of climbs. So I think this climb is 100 feet, and yeah. then you go down 200 feet, then you yeah. climb another 100 feet, that's 200 feet of elevation. I think the first climb out of the gate, I think it's two miles straight up. Is it at least on an okay grade? I have no idea. I mean, two, uh, two miles at a 1% grade is not terrible. Two yeah, miles at I, a 35% grade is third world torture. I think we'll, I think it's probably going to be in the 7 to 10% range maybe. So it's going to be a struggle. It's not going to be fun, which is why not everybody, not everybody does this event. And Harley's going to get punched in the dick for this one. This was his idea. He did taunt me with an amazing belt buckle. Do I need a medal? No, but I want that belt buckle. And I'll save that for the, for the race team video afterwards. Because I'm going to earn that belt buckle. Where did belt... Okay, I say belt buckles... <laughs> okay. I'm from Oklahoma. You win belt buckles for roping steer. Why is belt buckles the cycling award? I would not have put cycling and belt buckles together as the award. Admittedly, I think it started with the Leadville Trail 100. I think they set such a precedent with what they were doing that it opened up the door for other people to adopt it. The Leadville Trail 100 really was started as a fluke, as far as memory serves, in an old abandoned mining town that has lost its ass. And for X amount of dollars, you can sign up to do a 104-mile mountain bike race that you have to finish in under 12 hours. Otherwise, you don't get your jacket and you don't get your belt buckle, which coincidentally... I'm wearing. Not right now. Um, no, I've seen your belt buckle. And I remember thinking that, who decided belt buckles for cyclists? It just kind of happened. And, and maybe it was before that. Maybe it happened a long time ago. Like, I can remember... I remember when John Tomac, long before you were born, was leaning down the country western path. To his defense, he owned a ranch... He had livestock. 
So that aesthetic made sense. The rest of it, I have no idea. Don't have a clue. But we're here, so we just got to deal with it. It's just kind of an interesting award. Yeah, I don't know. But I want that belt buckle. And Harley's right. I, I am a, I am a, I'm a token chaser. I have a very hard time with participation, robin, uh, participation ribbons or medals. Yay, thanks for doing the thing. Here's your thing. And Which I, I've got one of those, and um, it's shoved in a drawer somewhere because it's not something I earned. It's something that I paid for. So going into the Breck Epic this year for me, I really want to do well, and I owe it to that bike by Orbea to do well. That is an amazing bike. God, I wish you could ride it to really understand what that means. I want one. I just bought a car now. I was just just kidding, but no, they they are they are amazing. And uh, I remember watched a video recently where uh, some guys went inside Orbea and walked through the particularly this bike's process, and it was everything is handmade. There's no they're not factory made. I mean, when I say factory made, it's not like a car. It's not a bunch of robots. It's not a stamping plant cranking out frames. These are all handmade, hand assembled. Every every all the decals put on it are done by hand. They're your bike was built by 12 individuals who sat there, I mean, I don't know what the time difference is in Spain, they're probably asleep right now, but are getting ready to get up and go to work and spend the next 12 hours or more reading orders and building these bikes, hand sanding them, hand painting them. That's what it takes. You want to make a great bike? You got to do it. The detail of a human eye looking over every aspect of it. And, and me- mechanics who have dedicated their lives to building these things and being the masters of building these things, uh, putting this together. This is like, you know, if Ferrari, or like I said, it re- when I saw the video, it reminded me of seeing the inside of the McLaren yeah, factory it's... where it was just that extreme dedication to detail. It is an amazing machine. Probably one of the fastest bikes I've ridden. Like, Right now I'm in the process of selling last year's Hardtail. Which is a really awesome bike, of which that's the only one in the city. Which we have, How many bike shops do we have in town? Individual? Enough. Four five or six? Because six? Uh, one of them has two locations. Yep. T-Town. So, uh, As does Bixby. Wait. Tom's? Tom's has two locations. Tom's has two... 21st does, but that uh, Fat Tire does. They got multiple, 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 including Arkansas. Mm-hmm. You've got the only one of your bike. Oh, yeah, statewide. Mm-hmm. I've seen some more Bayas out on the trail, but she's the only one because she's done in the team colors no. for the Breck Epic. Your hardtail. My hardtail, that one. Which is another uh, team bike. It is. The Vertex TO literally is. I think it's the only one in, in Oklahoma and the surrounding areas. Yeah, so I mean, it, you've got, it's the only one. I believe that to be true. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't know anybody who's a Rocky Mountain deal. No clue. Outside of Base Camp Cyclery, I know, I know Bicycles of Tulsa, who is our sister shop. I know they used to be an Orbea dealer, but I don't know where they stand now. But Rocky Mountain, I don't think it has any representation down here in Tulsa, which could be a really good opportunity if somebody decided to step up. Mm-hmm. But it's not me. They're both such fast machines in their own right. As a hardtail, the Rocky Mountain is unbelievably fast. As a full suspension bike, 
this thing rides like it should be on rails. I, I, I feel very fortunate, and, and having SRAM on board and time pedals, I've been using SRAM products since they were fluorescent yellow, which again goes back to, I think, way before you were born. Your stem still points down. You're damn right. And you use twist, twist grip shift. Which... I love grip shift. <laughs> yeah, grip shift, yeah. Twist shift, you can either twist a grip or press a trigger. I can't press a trigger. It feels weird. I mean, I could gush about this bike. I could gush about my, my Rocky Mountain all night long. But I think we've reached that, that point of it's time to go to bed. And I think we should all go home and go finish what we've got to do. But uh, we appreciate you hanging out with us tonight on Too Stupid to Know That I Can't. And we're going to leave some stuff in the show notes for you to follow up on. And there'll be some upcoming pictures and some other links. So, Dalton, thanks so much for hanging out. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. Toodles. Bye. There's a light that shines off in the distance. We may never know of its name. Where wealth is not measured in substance. And pleasure's not writhing in pain. Your promise has led me to ruin Your kiss foretold of my grave And I'll gladly embrace the destruction And drink the remains of the days And as you go to sleep tonight There's no need for a guiding light I've got the whole world left to roam And I'm not coming home